Hebrews and Hebrews 11. And let me give you a, a kind of a content warning this morning. I'm not going to be saying rude things, but I'm going to be talking to you as pastor, as leader, as well as preaching God's word to you combined. Um, we're going to do some down-to-earth stuff today along the way through. So we're getting back into Hebrews today. In recent weeks, we've thought about Abraham, then Sarah, then Abraham again. And now we have a brief mention of the three generations that followed Abraham in direct descent. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So shall we pray? Lord, we commit this time into your hands. Pray for understanding. We need to see it. We need to embrace it. We then need to do it. We pray for your word to bear fruit through our hearts, in our lives, that Jesus may be honoured. Help us, Holy Spirit. You have inspired scripture. You inspire preachers and those who prophesy. Now inspire all of us with revelation, with understanding, and with obedience. Amen. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Before we get to each in turn, and we're not doing the whole biography, we're just looking at what Hebrews says about them, I need to remind you that none of those men was the firstborn, the natural heir. Ishmael was born to Abraham before Isaac. Jacob was the secondborn. Esau was the firstborn to Isaac. And Joseph was the tenth of, no, no, eleventh of twelve. Eleventh of twelve. There were ten before him and one after him. I mean, that's, that's really making the point, isn't it? That this is not about who comes out the womb first. This is about God's choice. In each generation, the Lord chose and appointed the heir who received the authority and inheritance of the firstborn, the head of the family. It wasn't Isaac. It was Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Joseph, not ten brothers before him, one after him. And that decision of God to appoint to sonship and to heirship is in the Bible called election, and it's applied to us as Christians. We are sons of God, not because we chose to be, but because God chose us to be. And these examples of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph are held out in Scriptures, Romans 9 particularly, of how God chooses his children by his sovereign wisdom, his will, and his grace. It's not by natural descent. It's by sovereign grace. It's by election. We've got two elections coming up, haven't we? People choosing. Uh, which is good news for us because we, 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 this place becomes a polling station. We've actually got two lettings in the next two months for polling stations. So that's good. We're going to deal with these men, three men together, not one week by week, but as one, because the scripture is making the same point about all three, as we'll see. First of all, by faith, Isaac, the second born of Abraham, remember, blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Isaac was, felt that he was sick, that he was getting towards the end of his life. In fact, he lived another few decades after that. He obviously recovered. But he drew them together to bless them. But even the name, the order of the names here is important. For Esau was not the firstborn. Sorry, Esau was the firstborn. Jacob wasn't. You can read the account of Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau in Genesis 27. There's a hint. Go read it. Jacob had earlier obtained the firstborn right by when his brother Esau came in ravenous from a hunting trip, he gave him a bowl of stew in return for the promise of firstborn rights. Uh, I think it was a deal of the century, wasn't it? Much later, when his father says, I'm going to, I want you sons to, you know, I'm going to get you and I'm going to bless you because I'm, I, feel I'm, I feel my bones aching kind of thing. Jacob went in, pretending to be Esau, wearing even animal skins on his arms to make him rough and hairy, and claimed the blessing from his blind and ailing father Isaac. Are you really Esau? Yes, he said in his not-so-deep voice as the other one. When Esau turned up, having killed some game and prepared a meal, and went into his father Isaac, Jacob's, uh, Isaac, Isaac said, but I've already blessed your brother Jacob, and the blessing can't be taken away. And at that point, 
Esau wept and pleaded with his father to change his mind. That's what it means when it says he couldn't gain repentance, even though with tears. He couldn't make Isaac change his mind about it. He'd done what he'd done under the eyes of God. And so Isaac, the best he could do is to pronounce some sort of blessing on Isaac. And the things that Isaac said about Jacob and Esau were prophetically true, not just of them, but of their descendants, the people of Israel and the people of Edom, the Edomites, because Esau's nickname was Red. And interesting in that, he's, what he had was Red Stew from his brother uh, Jacob. So Isaac blessed his two sons and through that blessing predicted the future of them and their descendants. Then there's Jacob. Jacob, when he was coming to the end of his life, and this was the end of his life, when, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Notice it doesn't say all the sons of Israel, just the, the sons of Joseph. There. And worship leaning on the top of his staff. Now this happened in Egypt. You can read it in Genesis 48 and 49. Jacob, as he was dying, gathered all his sons and made prophetic statements over them and their tribes. But his focus here is on Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. His words to his sons contained encouragement and warning. And for some sons and their tribes, his predictions are hard words. He says some tough things over his own descendants there. And you can track those tribes' names through the Bible, and see how the old, what the old man spoke by the Holy Spirit was absolutely true that day. I'm going to read you just the last verse of Genesis 49. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That's a noble Christian way to die, isn't it? I'm finished now. I'm going to the Lord. And then there's Joseph. Joseph, when he was dying, quite some decades after his father had died, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders, instructions concerning his bones. Or it said Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons of Jacob, Israel. But even while he was a teenager, he, by a mix of prophecy and his father's decision and, and God speaking to to, to, to Jacob and to Joseph about this, Jacob appointed Joseph as firstborn. That's what the coat of many colours was about. It was like a badge of office. That one was the firstborn. He, you know, not, not in terms of time, but in terms of authority. So when his brothers were going to kill him, but, didn't, but they sold him into slavery, they rejected the God-given authority that God had placed upon Joseph. And guess what? God brought it around in the end and Joseph became head of the whole tribe. Protector, guardian, provider to the whole extended family. The life of Joseph is a wonderful story in Genesis. It's full of foreshadows of Jesus. But the writer here goes straight to Joseph's dying day. You can read that in Genesis 50, the last chapter of Genesis. Let me read the last few verses there. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. You notice he's the head of the family now. Jacob's died. Joseph is head of the family. So whatever you say about Joseph, it's true of the whole family. He and his father's household. And Joseph lived altogether 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. That's great, great grandchildren, isn't it? Also the sons of Machiah, the, sons, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. So that's the second generation of his other son, Manasseh. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you will carry my bones up from here. Joseph's prophesying. God will bring you out of this land of Egypt. And they were in a good time in Egypt at the time. Slavery hadn't started yet. 
400 years later, they're crying out to God to be delivered from slavery. But he says, predicting the future by the Holy Spirit, God will bring you out of this land to the promised land. And when you go, take my bones with you. You know, I'm not staying here. (laughs) Around 400 years later, as I said, that's what happened and that's what they did. They took the embalmed body of Joseph back up to Israel, to the land, and they buried him there. Remember, the point here is not just to give us the whole story of these men, but to teach us, he was embalmed in a place in the coffin of Egypt, to teach us how Hebrews 10 pretty much finishes, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 11 explains and examples what that is. The just shall live by faith. So what is the scripture saying here about faith? What is said of all three of these men? Well, what is said is this, that by faith they blessed and prophesied over and gave instructions to the following generations. Even when they were dying. Or in Isaac's case, thought he was. In each case, in blessing and prophesying of their children, they did it even when they thought they were dying. So faith prays and blesses and prophesies. It projects hope for the future or even warning concerning the future. And faith instructs further generations to continue this same living by faith for the glory of God through Jesus. It's not enough that that we're saved. It's not enough that we know the Lord. We're eager, hungry for the next generation to carry on living by faith. These three men are examples to us of that forward thinking, investing in the next generation, seeing that people after us will continue and even exceed us, do better than we did in loving and serving the Lord. And even if we die not having seen what we've altogether hoped for, we bless and project and pray for a further generation to go on to that promise and that hope. We do it by blessing them, by teaching them, by praying for them and by prophesying to them. Now I want to think about prophecy for a little while this morning. Some points concerning prophecy. This is our prophesying, the New Testament gift of prophecy, not prophetic scriptures. Okay? And the first point I need to make is this. Our prophesying is of a lesser order than the prophetic scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. It abides forever. What I prophesy to you may be a word from the Lord, but it doesn't abide forever. It hasn't got the same level of inspiration. It doesn't have the same authority. So don't put what some preacher or prophet or whatever said to you alongside of Scripture and think it's of the same kind of stuff. It's lesser. It's lesser. In fact, according to Acts, the example of Bereans, when a preacher delivers something to us, we're to search the Scriptures, check it out, and then believe it. Right? Say, so oh, you know, he's right. On that, <laughs> not on everything. We must not, be, we must not be adding to the Bible by prophesying. We're not adding to the Bible by prophesying. And we mustn't quote scriptures like Isaiah fifty-five, which is that His word doesn't pass away but fulfills everything He sends it for. You know that scripture? It doesn't fail, but it accomplishes all He sends it to. That is true of the biblical prophetic scriptures. It's not true of all of our prophesying. We mustn't use it that way. All right. Are you happy hearing this? Yes. Some of you are? Okay. Then, secondly, our prophesying is partial, incomplete. I'll give you a scripture. Write in the notes for this one. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Our prophesying, the use of the New Testament gift of prophecy, the, 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 the operation of the gifts of the Spirit in prophetic words, is partial. It's imperfect. It gets some mixture from us on the way, for a start. And secondly, we don't know everything. In fact, I tell you the truth, my friends, some of the times when what I've prophesied to people has been most helpful is when I haven't had a clue what I was saying. Did I know? No. 
But somehow God put some thoughts in me which I uttered out, which they received as being the word of the Lord to help them. But I did not understand. I did not have revelation about it. I was just foolishly, in a sense, saying the first thing that came into my mind because I was desperate to <laughs> got to do something for them. Yeah? I'm being honest with you here. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Listen, no one is right all the time. No one. Not even prophets with you, function as prophets, you know. Put that idea right out of your head that, some, that any one of us, any one of us is infallible and always accurate. We know in part and prophesy in part. Now, in the Old Testament, if a prophet prophesied something and it didn't come to pass, they were to stone them. You know? Well, we're, we live in the age of grace. We don't stone them. But I think we do need to be accountable for when we get it wrong and admit we got it wrong. We need to be grown up and admit that, you know, sometimes we prophesy something which has more accuracy in it and sometimes we just prophesied because it was our best, our best throw at it. You know? We need to learn to discern. We need to, be able, we need to learn to tune in. Now that's why we need to be forgiving because we need to learn how to prophesy better. How to develop that gift. All right? So we need to be forgiving and forbearing. And quite honestly, if someone prophesies something to me, so long as it's kind of generally positive, I've got a thick skin, I'll take it. (laughs) But we need to learn how to tune in more accurately to the Spirit. And one of the things about prophesying a lot of the time as well is we know in part. But you know what? Once we get going, some of us don't know how to stop. You know, and I've listened to people prophesy, and I think, okay, the inspiration ran out about there. <laughs> you know? Sometimes what God says is a word. It really is a sentence. Yeah? And you know what? That's why, I'm off my subject, get back to the minute. That's why Paul says, in your gathering together, three people speak in tongues, three people interpret, two or three, you know, two or three at the most, two or three people prophesy. You think, well, that's not a lot. No, but how much prophecy can you take in in one go? Yeah? Is that the wisdom of the Holy Spirit? It is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Two or three, and then we need to, we need to do something with what we believe God's been saying to us, rather than just keep listening to more and more and more and more and more. Now, I would like, I want more prophecy in Lighthouse, but I don't want to become the kind of people who spend all evening prophesying and then go home. You know, when we've heard something from the Lord, we need to respond. I'm on the next point already. Prophecy is conditional. God makes very few unconditional promises, even in the scriptures. Very few completely unconditional prophecies. When he does, he uses this kind of language. By myself, I swear. All right? He does that only a few times. Doesn't matter what anybody says, what anybody does, I'm going to do this. Very, very, very rarely does God swear by himself, make an oath on his own name that he's going to do something. The other time, he makes promises. He gives us opportunities. And there's always implied in that a condition of faith and obedience. There's always an implied, if you will, then I'm going to do this. But guess what? If you don't, It don't happen. And people say, oh, the prophecy didn't work. No, we didn't take hold of it. We didn't do anything with it. The example I quote, because it's kind of near to home in somewhere in my past. The Lord's called me to go to France. Great. How's your French lessons going? (laughs) What are you doing about it? Until the day you can read your Bible in French and converse in French, you're not fit to go to France. Yeah? But the Lord's spoken. Yes, but what are you going to do with it? Prophecy is conditional. Almost always it's conditional. There's implied in it, come on now, respond. And God pulls us into his incredible purposes with promises which have an if-then, if-then, if you do, I do. Like I said earlier at the beginning of the meeting, 
draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. The big, the big part of that is he draws near to us. But the little bit we do is we draw near to him. Just a little bit of faith, a little bit of obedience, and heaven comes close. Conditional. Now, people sometimes prophesy as if they're speaking by, by, by the, the, the decree, the, 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 the divine oath of God, like it's unconditional. It isn't. We cannot prophesy at that level. It is not possible to us. It is forbidden to us. All right? So some people need to dial down their, their, their kind of braggadocio. I can't think of an easier word than that. Boasting in their prophesying. We need to dial down. In fact, it's far better to say to people, I just feel, I feel the Lord saying this, is that okay? You know? To offer it out. Because we could be wrong. And if the person doesn't want to receive it, it's not going to happen anyway. Right? It's conditional. And prophecy is often, this is gift of prophecy, New Testament prophesying, is often temporal. It has a time frame. So, you know, I, people prophesied stuff over me years ago and, you know, it was then. And, and I, could be, I could be looking, at, I've got a list of all that somewhere in my computer somewhere. I could be looking and say, well, what happened to that? What happened to that? Well, do you know what? Time moved on and we moved on and life moved on. Yeah. Prophecy is wrapped up in the now. It's the now input of God. For you to deal with now. You can't wrap it up, put it in a box and take it out 20 years later and say, I'll have that now. No, now it's gone. That was then. This is now. Yeah? And if you didn't do anything with it, then don't think you can pick it, dig it up again now. Yeah? It's temporal. It's temporary. It's not to be written down and say, oh, you know, I had these wonderful prophecies 25 years ago, 30 years ago. It's possible, it is possible that those things are still going to be fulfilled. But if all you've done is you've kind of had a flick of look at them every now and again in the meantime, I'm not so sure that you're actually engaging with prophetic word. Prophecy is given in a particular situation to meet a particular need, to answer our particular problem, to give us particular faith for a particular issue. It's momentary. It's like manna. You can't keep it. You've got to eat it, use it, and you move on. Another one, prophecy must be examined, tested. Again, right in the notes. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Don't ban them, don't dumb them, don't, don't, don't dismiss them. All right? But examine everything carefully Hold fast to that which is good. That's talk, the second verse there, the third verse rather in the three, is talking about prophecies, words of prophecy. Okay? Put it together. Let's encourage prophetic input. Don't quench the spirit. But when we get them, let's examine them carefully and take hold of that which is good. So you... How do you test prophecy? Well, you ask certain questions. Is this heavy or light? Do I need to catch this or is it just in the moment and by the time I've gone home, I, I, if I forget it, it's, it's no big deal. There can, be, there can be more weight about some things than other things. Does it build us up or depress us? Yeah? Does it build us up or pull us down? Because almost always prophecy is to build up to encourage, to strengthen the saints of God. Right? How does, what, what flavor does this have? How is this working, this prophecy? Is it clear or muddy? You know, I've got a picture. Yeah, but what does the picture mean? Yeah? There's, there's, there's this wave coming. Wave of what? Wave of what? Is it a wave of blessing? Is it a wave of destruction? What kind of wave is that? Yeah? Is it clear? Because God doesn't riddle us. You understand? He doesn't spin riddles. He's, he's not playing around like Samson did. You can tell I've been reading Judges. Yeah? So, <laughs> um, God doesn't play that kind of game with us. He wants us to hear something we can understand. 
That's why Paul says, again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, he says, when you come together, don't all spend all morning speaking in tongues out loud. You know, no one says anything in your normal language, so no one gets to understand anything. We, God's, in, God's intention is that we understand some things. We can receive them. We can believe them. We can act on them. Yeah? So prophecy needs to have meaning. Clear, valid meaning that we can respond to. And then in weighing it as well, because it comes with mixture. Preachers are a mixture. You know, prophesying is a mixture. I remember one old wise guy, when I was a Bible coach many, many years ago, and I said to me, I was, I was bothered about stuff, and I asked him his advice, and he said, my dear young brother, please remember this, at our very best, we are still mixture. That, I found that really helpful. I found that really helpful. But in, say someone's prophesying, we've got to discern. How much do we sense the Lord is speaking in this, and how much do we just have to accept as being well-meant human effort? And it's not, it's not a big deal that there's some mixture. But we need to discern, what's God saying? What do I need to grab hold of? Hold fast that which is good. That's like, <laughs> grab it. Yeah? Take a hold of it. Hold fast that which is good. And don't just preserve it somewhere in a you know, computer file. But do something with it. Quickly, prayerfully. Take it back to the Lord. Words of prophecy that pass that kind of examination need to be held onto and worked through and put into action. So let me give you again some definitions from a week or two ago. I like this. I got this from a guy called uh, Ken Ulmer, a preacher called Ken Ulmer. It's a great classic sermon on his word in our mouth. Anyway, these are his definitions, which I'm crediting to him. Scripture is his words from his mouth. Preaching and prophesying are, at best, his words from our mouth. That's when we're really, on our best day, yeah? But it's often mixture. But beware of putting our words in his mouth. That's why I will not have this I decree and declare. Because we're putting our words in his mouth. We're claiming to have the authority to speak something on God's behalf which is not only you know, exhortational and instruction and, and encouragement and so on, but is actually, actually, actually authoritative in that it is creational. It makes something happen. Yeah? Now, when God gives us enough faith to, to say, I believe God is going to do so-and-so, and we, we put our faith out there and say, yeah, I believe he's going to do that, that's the way we say it. We don't say, I decree it's going to happen. Who are you, God? We're not God. We mustn't put our words in his mouth. But if he said, I believe the Lord is saying he's going to do this and I'm going to trust him for it. Yeah? Now you say, well, you're arguing about the way we say things. Yeah, but the way we say things says something about what we, what's going on in our hearts. And again, there's a great deal of boastfulness in, in this kind of decree and declare. It's like, you know, I've got the authority and the faith to say this and it's going to happen. You know? Whoa, whoa, no. Beware of putting our words in his mouth. To get back to this blessing, praying and prophesying to the next generation. Isaac, Jacob and Joseph blessed and prophesied over and gave instructions to, and I'm sure prayed for, that it's not mentioned to, the following generations, which is exactly what we need to do. If you look up the word generations in the Bible, you find it's used a lot in Psalms. And those psalms often speak of one generation declaring the Lord's name and his mercy and his works to the next generation. And even so that a generation which is not yet born will honor him. You know, you're investing not just for this generation, but like, like jo- jo- uh, Joseph saw his third generation away, his great-great-grandchildren before he died. One generation shall, this is just one example, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. We need to bless our own children, young Christians, new Christians, fresh Christians, to encourage them, 
to teach them, to pray for them, to prophesy to them. But there is no one thing we can do which is a trick, the fix. This is about a lifestyle. You know, part of the part of the, 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 the foolishness that's been around in charismatic and Pentecostal church for some years is where all people are looking for the trick. You just say that and it works. You do that and it always works. You know? And they even sell you their conferences. You know, oh, you come to my conference, I will give you the, I'll tell you the trick. There is no trick. Faith is not magic. It's not abracadabra, but you say Jesus instead. Yeah? yeah? There is no trick. This is about a devoted lifestyle of investing in those around you and coming after you. Forward-moving faith sees beyond my own time to where those who follow must go on. And they, our children, the next generation of Christians, the young people growing up in our churches, they may accomplish what we haven't. They may succeed where we have failed. They may face greater or lesser battles and hardships than we've done. But we prepare them and project them into the future in faith and by faith. Remember we looked at Sarah on Mothering Sunday. And we turned to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Because I want to break this down again make show you it's not, it's not beyond us. It's not way up there. Here it is, Deuteronomy 6 again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. I'm going to add a little here to the scripture. And then you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. <laughs> don't know where I did that. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, which is what the Jews literally do. They put scripture on their wrists and on their heads. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. A guy called Reggie Joyner sets it out like this. Firstly, relationship comes before rules. You shall love the Lord your God. Yourself. Faith must be in, be in you before it can be in them. Yeah. You can only teach what you, what you know. You can only example what you do. And then in verse 7 to verse 8 and 9, every day offers natural opportunities for that kind of teaching and conversation and input. When you sit at home, mealtimes. When you walk along the road or drive along the road, travel time. When you lie down, bedtime. Night time. When you get up, breakfast, get ready time. This is not, let's have an hour of teaching a week when I, when I, when I catechize my kids or whatever. Yeah? This is doing life. This is, see, faith is life and life is faith. And the greatest problem for, for, for many Christians is that, that we've allowed the devil to influence our thinking. So here's faith over here, real life's over here. I do, I do church and faith Sunday and whatever, but you know, the rest of the week I've got real life to get on with. Life is faith. Faith is life. Yes. Yes, and when we do life in the family and we're expressing faith in the family, that's what happens. And repetition is the teacher's best friend, is the last point there. Those times of interaction are all available to us if we will clear out distractions and time-wasting and turn the TV off and talk over the mealtime instead. If we focus on those family times, they are, they are available to us. And if we're dealing with friends, and with people we're mentoring and discipling, we, we, can, we can sit and have a meal with them, we can go and have a coffee with them, but we, make, we just use the time. We just use the time to make to the best effect. This is for mums and dads and also for those who spend time with people to mentor them and disciple them. How will our children or the next generation in a wider sense know that we love the Lord and how shall we show them the way to love the Lord? Well, 
Let me digress a little. How do we know that a young man has fallen in love with some young woman? Because he goes off his trifle, as they say. (laughs) Because he changes his conduct, his conversation, his cash flow, and perhaps his cleanliness and his clothing are all changed by the fact he has this powerful attraction to this delightful young woman. Yeah? Yep. And that's before he's even got as far as asking her out, as we say. Twist <laughs> myself up and sort myself out. <laughs> now, it's only a poor analogy. And I'm, I'm going to leave out cleanliness and clothing. But if we love the Lord, our conduct, our conversation, and our cash flow will be profoundly different from people who do not love him. Altogether different. Because we love the Lord. We will live differently for his glory, not for our own gain. We'll speak differently. He will be the center of our conversation and we won't be like Gordon Ramsay. He's famous for his sweary language. I like that expression, sweary language, yeah. Our conversation will be different. Again, because we're not speaking for our own gain. We're speaking for his honour. And we'll be honouring him by giving back the first proportion, the tithe, 10% or more, of our income back to him who gave it to us. Therefore, in those three things, we have three very basic signs or measures that a man or woman loves the Lord. It's seen in their conduct. It's heard in their conversation. It's evident in the way they handle money and income. See, posterity is altogether better than prosperity. What influence you have on others is much more important than how much money you can accumulate. It's far better to have invested your life in raising and training a further generation of followers of Christ than to have accumulated wealth. Because what do you do with it when you die? You leave it to someone else. I've probably told you this joke before, but one rich man in America died and he insisted all his money was buried with him. <laughs> so when the funeral took place, you know, fancy funeral, you know, coffin and, you know, the way they do things in America. Down went the coffin and someone turned to his wife and said, so is it all in there? She said, yeah, I wrote him a check. <laughs> you can't take it with you when you go. So what are you going to do with it in this life? Do some good with it. For the Lord's sake. It's far better to have spent whatever wealth God allowed us to serve and supply the work of his kingdom, local church, missions, supplying needs, than to die a rich man. Now when an upcoming generation, whether natural children or people we're discipling, mentoring, encouraging, can see us, and observe us and listen to us. And what they see is this love for the Lord. And what they hear are words of thanks to him and teaching about him. And they know that even the way we handle money is for the glory of God, both our income and our expenditure. Then they can either catch it or they reject it, but at least they've seen it. They've seen what living by faith looks like, sounds like. See, my friends, for for our offspring and for people that we're raising around us, children, young people, I love the kids here and the young people here on a Sunday. They delight to me. You know, you think, I don't go out of my way to be nice to kids. I just just really do love to see kids around. But for them to become Christians and faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ, we, this generation, need to be committed Christians. And conduct ourselves as responsible, faithful members of his church. They need to see it, to learn it from us. And not just church going, you know, chapel going on a Sunday. I'm a Christian, I go to church on a Sunday. Okay? People are football fans, they go to football on a Saturday. I mean, what's the big deal? 
but engagement in the service of the church, the finance of the church, the prayer of the local church for the honour of Jesus. Now I need to say something today about church finances. We very much appreciate all the work and service that people give to this fellowship and, and generous and sacrificial giving of many of you. But at this point in time, our level of income is still less than is necessary to actually maintain this building and to pay an Elim pastor's salary, which is set by conference. I don't decide that, and people here don't decide that. It's, it's, it's authorised by him. We've just passed the end of a tax year, end of March. So here are the figures for this past year. I, I'm not giving you the numbers. You can just see there how there were times we were really encouraged by money coming in, and, and then towards the end of this year, it's tailed down. And the red line is what our budget is. Now, you know that we had to let Jack go back to work in January, towards the end of January. So our budget of what we need each month has dropped, but still the, the income is below break-even. And so the bank balance over the past 12 months has gone like that. You see how it is picking up there at the bottom, David, on the last two months? Well, let me tell you this. In February, Epping gave £4,000 towards the church for my work for them in this last year. We also had over £2,000 come in as a short-term loan, part of which has been made a gift since then. But if we, that £6,000 or so pounds had not come in, there would only be a few hundred pounds there in the bank at the end of March. That's then enough to get through the month. We have had exceptional income. We've seen God's providence. But there's a gap between how we get by, even carving down, budgeting things really low. And Anybody who knows me will tell you I'm, I'm, I'm like a ferocious buyer. Not in that I buy everything. I get the best deal you can. But um, if we're going to do what we do, we have a gap between our income and our costs. Gift aid comes in every three months or so, but that only partly backfills every three months when it comes in. And gift aid is only a percentage back from the government of what has already been given. It's not in that sense more money, it's just a top-up of the money that's already come in. So if the money doesn't come in, gift aid will only be a certain proportion of it. In May, we're nearly at the end of April now. I'm giving you end of March figures, but we're getting towards May. In May, May is our most expensive month of the year. Because we two do, things, two do two things in May. Number one, we send our representatives to the Elim Conference, or Elim Leaders Summit, it's now called. I have to go as an Elim pastor, Elim minister. I'd have to have a really good reason, like, you know, something just fell off, you know. <laughs> my aging body or whatever, not to go. You, you, you're required to go. All right? We're also asked to send someone as a church representative. They call it a lay representative, but I don't like the word lay. It's someone who represents the church, who's not an alien minister. Colin has fulfilled that role ever since I stopped fulfilling that role because I became an alien minister. Early days, Rob and I went and he was the pastor and I was the church rep. So, but, and then... I like to take Carol along as well because she's there to represent the women of the church and to be engaged with the women of Elim and to pick up connections and so on. You know, you have conversations, you meet people, you get to know how we can help one another. So that's, we've already paid £360 of fees for that. That's already done and gone, but there's still uh, the hotel cost, the meals, the, 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 the travel, the petrol and so on to get there. It's a good few hundred pounds. Then we do International Day. Costs us a few, good few hundred pounds to put an international day each year. We don't begrudge it. We're serving friends. We're serving guests. So although the food is donated pretty much by many of us, you know, we get the plates and the knives and forks and disposables because no one wants to be in there till 7 o'clock at night washing up, do you? Uh, and we decided which we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have that many plates. Where do you, where do you store two, 300 plates in a building, you know, for an event like that? So as well as encouraging you to honour the Lord with the first fruits of all that he supplies to you, on Sunday 7th of May, we will have a gift day for special giving. 
On that day, we want to gather the funds to meet the costs of sending our representatives to the Elim Summit uh, to cover International Day and to repay a short-term loan, which has kept us afloat in the last couple of months. But if we are simply aiming to raise that much, we haven't dealt with the issue. Put it really, really bluntly. There will come a month, next month, maybe the month after, when there will not be enough money towards the end of the month, having paid out the mortgage to pay a pastor's salary. So we need to address this together. And something needs to change. But the gift day, a goal, an action of faith. You say, well, how are you, David? Well, I'm mixed. Because I'm discouraged about some things, and yet on the other hand, I'm encouraged. I, I, Karen and I find personal encouragement. We find God's word assuring us. We find examples of his providence. Even yesterday, when we'd been talking about this, someone came and knocked the door, and in that moment, they, they, they just did something. We said, God's, God's still at work here. So I'm, you ask me internally or, you know, I'm seeing a problem. I'm internally being encouraged. But those two never, might, might not meet up. Yeah. There's a difference. I'm, I'm not Lighthouse. Lighthouse is not me. Yeah. This is our problem together. So do pray and prepare for that day. There are days when we make particular sacrificial gifts to God. Offerings to God. You know, we sometimes call something an offering, but it was really just a little bit of extra. An offering costs us something. I know people who, when they've been involved in building projects, and they haven't had Elam to kind of fund it and then put a mortgage in place, they've, 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 they've raided their ISAs, you know, saving plans, and brought that money to, for the next phase of the building. They've not taken the early retirement, but worked a few more years so that they... They can put something in. You see, why do they? Because they, they've got this sense of we're in this together. We want to see this happen. We want to see this happen. And so they're even willing to make real sacrifices to glorify God. Coming back now to the whole of conduct, conversation, and cash flow. Those are seen, love and faith are seen in those things. Our devotion to Christ is seen in these things. Whatever we may say, people see what we really love and how we really live and what matters most to us. And you know, we, we misuse the scripture that you know, says, God looks on the heart, God looks on the heart. Uh, because there's a whole other set of scriptures that tells us he looks at our works too. Our deeds. And he rewards those who do well. Jesus said to the seven churches in Revelation, I know your deeds. And they told him whether they're doing well or not. And Jesus, as an old friend of mine said, he's not a liar. He won't tell you you did well if you didn't. He knows our deeds. Our deeds reveal our hearts. Out of a good heart of a good man come out these deeds. And out of an evil heart of an evil man come out these deeds. Deeds reveal our heart. So we cannot excuse ourselves for things we do by saying, yeah, but God knows my heart. It shows that there's more heart surgery needed so that the things we do change. Yeah? Our deeds reveal our hearts. Now Isaac, Jacob and Joseph understood some of these things. They were not faultless, far from it. They made mistakes. But they lived by faith in God, not only in their own time for themselves. They invested in the time beyond their own by preparing and projecting further generations into loving and serving the Lord. By faith, they declared the Lord's name and his covenant and his purposes to generations after them. The verses we looked at today say they even did this on their deathbed, as we say. But they'd obviously done some of it in life as well. Otherwise, they, how would Joseph have been a believer if he hadn't learned somewhere? from someone, something about faith in the Lord. Parents and mentors and disciple makers, and here's what we need to do for the next generation after us. You put time and love into them? Yes. If you're a parent, you probably lay out a fortune to feed and clothe and raise and educate your kids. But please do this. 
Show them what it is to love the Lord and to live by faith in him. Show them what it is to belong to the Lord. We sang it earlier, I'm not my own. And to love and serve him. Pray for them. I know mums are the best at doing this very often. Faithful mums praying for their children. Pray for them, instruct them, bless them, speak prophetically to them. That includes warning and correction. But be more positive than negative when you're dealing with them. But more than even than what you say, be the Christian that you want them to be, if not better. Give them the platform on which to build the life of faith in the future. So that when you and I have gone, they go on living by faith in God through Jesus. Just as Isaac did after Abraham had gone. Just as Jacob did after Isaac had gone. And just as Joseph did after Jacob had gone. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we may, every one of us, have faith in our hearts to bless and support and project people after us into a greater experience of you and a greater knowledge of you and a greater love for you than we have even known ourselves. I pray that we may have an ambition that goes beyond our lifetime that we may have a faith that doesn't die because we die, because it lives on and is even being extended and advanced through others. You call us to invest, Lord, to invest our lives and our time and our money now, not just for now, but for future development too. And the work of this local church is not just about running meetings on a Sunday. It's about gathering children and young people in whom we invest the future. We invest hope. We project them into a life of faith. Lord Jesus, increase our faith, we pray. Because this is how we live. And forgive us, Lord, for divorcing, for allowing the devil's light to separate in our thinking life from faith, as if they are not in your kingdom one and the same the just shall live by faith. Now, Lord Jesus, as we break bread together, pray that you may be honoured as we do this. Thank you, Lord. Amen.